it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 30th, 2012. Okay, I hope you were paying attention to uh, Phil Johnson's lecture on um, a survey of historical heresies. You may need that information on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work to see if what people are saying squares with, well, sound doctrine, a proper distinction of law and gospel. Um, what God's Word really says in context, or if, well, they're contradicting God's Word, teaching false doctrine, leading people astray, you know, things like that. So this is a politically incorrect program, and if you're new to the program, then my strong recommendation for you is you need to give this program maybe about three to four weeks. And the reason I say that is, is well, it could be like a cold bucket of water, a theological cold bucket of water, and you know, to the face, to the body, and it just kind of, kind of jolting. But keep in mind, if you understand Christian history and Christian theology and, and Christian controversy as it pertains to understanding God's Word, there's been controversy all along. And it's not because Christians are called to be controversial. It's because other people, well, heretics arise and teach things that are contrary to Scripture. And the biblical command uh, for those who are in authority in the church, who are teachers, overseers, elders, um, is that they are to rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine and rebuke them sharply. This is what Titus, uh, This well, it's actually there in the epistle to Titus, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, and so the idea is, is that you don't sit on your hands and say nothing and go, yeah, you know, I, I I hope that person figures things out there. It looks like they're heading down the wrong path, and yeah, it sounds like they're believing a false gospel, and I really mean for them, you know, I really mean the best for them. I, I just, you know, I can't say anything because, you know, I don't want to be considered judging, and, you know, or if I say something, you know, like, you know, hey, you know, that what you're being taught there, that isn't the truth. You know, if I say that to them, well, you know, they'll call me a hater. It, you know, and if I if I open up the Bible and say, you know, that thing you've been saying, that's not what the Bible says. Let me show you. They, you know, well, I could lose their friendship. You know, if, if, if you go along those lines, you think about it this way. Um, everything that I've described there is contrary to what the Bible says regarding the need to love our neighbors. How can we say that we love our neighbors if we're not willing to confront them with false doctrine, false teaching, false methodologies, false ecclesiology, things that are, uh, well, leading them astray, causing them to focus on the wrong thing? How can we say that we love them if we're not willing to correct them and show them the truth? You know, it, it, and the idea is is that Christians are not called into controversy for the sake of controversy, uh, debate for the sake of debate. That's 
not what Christians are called to do. Um, they're called to confront and rebuke when what's at stake are God's sheep. They're called to, well, rebuke and confront when the false teaching could lead somebody to hell. They're called to rebuke and confront and to set things straight when, well, it, it, what's at stake are is, well, the church itself, the gospel itself. And what you find is that, well, this isn't a theoretical argument anymore. We see how heresy runs its course. You know, it's you know, literally, I mean, just I, I'm thinking about just the course of my career of uh, doing what I do here at Pirate Christian Radio. And prior to that, you know, doing a, apologetics a ministry to, you know, to cultists and things like that, is that what you see is that there's a progression. The scripture talks about those who believe false doctrine, who are heretics, who refuse to uh, believe the truth. They go from bad to worse. They don't go from from bad to okay. They don't go from bad to, well, now they're great. Um, not without uh, s- somebody stepping in and saying, no, that is not what God's word teaches. As a result, what happens is, is that heretics, they start drifting and you can see that there's slippage in their teaching, and then the slippage becomes more and more noticeable to where the, the literally it's like a crack that that opens up, and you know, and then now there's a huge separation. And the thing is, is that heretics are not content with just doing their own thing. They're, many heretics are they're like an acid that their goal is to destroy and eat away as much of the body of Christ as possible because when you believe heresy you believe your you know, bizarre teaching your your ideas are well you believe that that's from God and anybody who opposes what you're teaching which happens to be heresy well they're opposing God himself and so it it's not they're not content to just have their own little kingdoms over here they want to take over and uh, and so th- th- there's a hostile nature to heresy and this makes perfect sense because, well, the Bible describes heresy as, well, doctrines of demons. And so Satan isn't interested in just getting along with, uh, you know, historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. Satan is hellbent, that's probably the right way of putting it, on destroying the church, of obfuscation, of blurring, of causing doubt of getting the church off topic so that, well, people are spending all of their time doing anything but preaching Christ, him crucified, and preaching sound biblical doctrine. That's the only way Satan, uh, that's Satan, well, that's Satan's tactic. And when somebody goes heretical, they are no longer, they are no longer agents of God. And, you know, I know, you know, there's some of you going, well, were they ever? They're no longer agents of God promoting the proclamation and the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. Well, they become something completely different. And what will happen is is that you, you catch it in their language. Those who believe the truth, those who are holding to sound biblical doctrine, those who are teaching and proclaiming sound ecclesiology, uh, good methodology, sound doctrine— those people, if you listen to their messages, the, the heretics speak about people who are preaching the truth as if they're the problem, 
as if they're the, the people who are in the way of the progress that the church needs to make. And what happens is, is that those who are being faithful to God's word, who are towing the line, those people who are day in and day out, week after week, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, preaching the word, preaching sound biblical doctrine, feeding Christ's sheep. What happens is, is that the heretics view those guys as the issue. What they're, they, ugh, we've got to find a way to work around them, to find a way to obfuscate, to make those guys, to basically dilute them and make them disappear. That's the idea. And this is interesting to note, that the seeker-driven movement the seeker-driven movement ultimately isn't targeted towards seekers. Now, I know that kind of sounds bizarre, um, uh, you know, but uh, I had a pastor from um, Alabama, not Alabama, um, Arkansas, email me this morning. And he had a, he had a great point. I'm going to read his full email, but he basically pointed out that the real target of the seeker-driven movement is pastors. It's pastors. That's why they have all the time, they have all these leadership conferences, all these bright, big, shiny events with the big hoo-hahs and the experiences and all this kind of stuff, is because the seeker-driven movement, they they know that they could steer and basically take over the whole church by taking over, well, and aligning themselves and getting pastors to align with them. It's a movement that specifically targets itself to pastors. You get you get the pastor, you get the whole church. That's how they think, and that's what they try to do. And so you got to understand, your pastor is feeling a lot of pressure. Your pastor is feeling a lot of pressure in this current environment, in this current hostile environment to, well, grow the church. I mean, think about it this way. How frustrating must it be? For a pastor who faithfully preaches the word, doesn't engage in any monkey business, lovingly cares for the sheep that Christ has put into his care, and he's got a small church, okay? And then some, well, some punk kid, you know, I, I, I know it doesn't sound like a flattering term, but that, just kind of work with me here. Some guy who, well, whose attitude and methods uh, aren't any better than, you know, an overgrown junior high youth pastor. You, you understand what I'm saying? And this guy comes into town with his hipster skinny jeans and, you know, bizarre haircut and, and you know, his piercings and his bizarre methods. And, you know, he, he wasn't there last week, but this week he's launching his church and 500 people show up because you know he's got all these this 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 marketing acumen and he's got these brand new methodologies and so what happens is is that you know where these churches land you know people want to be part of the new greatest biggest hippest thing ever and they get caught up in all of this stuff they end up not being taught God's word correctly but what you find is is that in those areas where these big box churches land and are successful it 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 has a very serious impact on what's going on in the pastoral ministry in and around that region. Think of it this way. There's many communities within the United States who fight very, very strongly against having a Walmart put in their local community. And the reason for that is this, is that it has been shown over and over and over and over again that when a Walmart Walmart comes to town, the mom-and-pop small shops go out of business. P- 
people don't go and shop there anymore. They go to Walmart. They don't go to the small guy who's been running a tool, you know, who's been running a tool shop, uh, you know, for the last 50 years or 60 years. It's been in his family for, you know, for ages. They don't go to that guy anymore. They go to Home Depot. So the idea is, is that, you know, what we see happening out there in the business marketplace is also happening in the church. And I hate to describe the church as a marketplace. That's probably the wrong metaphor, but work with me here. So what happens is, is that you get a big box church, okay? Big mega church that's, you know, that's being, that's thriving and successful and all, everyone is all excited about this thing, right? Well, all of the pastors in and around that particular area are now thrust into a situation where they either, this is how they view it, they have to adapt and make some compromises or literally see themselves go out of business. Smaller churches have a tendency to disappear or to really, really, you know, be put on the ropes when a big box church comes to town. Tide dollars disappear, the younger generation disappears, and so ultimately the pressure then is put back on the pastor is put on the pastor are you going to seriously stay with your traditional methods you're going to you really you're going to do the liturgy you you come on you're going to have a lectionary and you're going to preach through large swaths of god's word come on don't you understand that if you just join the movement and start adapting your methodologies. You know, have a summer movie uh, sermon series. You know, just, you know, that you start making these little changes and give the marketplace what they want. You're you're not going to have to be small and insignificant and unnoticed and, you know, and have a church that's tiny. I mean, you can have worldly success, big numbers, you know, we, you, in fact, you might even grow a church, you know, have something exciting going on to work. You know what? We might even let you, well, speak at one of our conferences. You see, you know, there's perks to being in the movement. Don't you want to be in the movement? And so you, you, you see, you understand what I'm saying. That's what happens. They're going after your pastors. And as a result of it, I mean, there's whole areas now where it is extremely difficult to find a church that faithfully preaches God's word, is devoted to the apostolic preaching, the teaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, prayer, the Lord's Supper, uh, communion of the saints. It's hard to find those churches. I mean, personally, I have to drive almost 40 minutes to church every Sunday. 40 minutes there, 40 minutes back. That's what it's come to. And I have to make the commute. And I don't mind the commute because I've got a fantastic congregation that I'm a member of and I serve at. So the the idea is is that there's a lot of pressure put on your pastor. A lot of pressure. Join the movement. Make some compromises, right? But what happens when that happens is, is that they're always told, don't worry, these methods are theologically neutral. You can change your methods without changing the message. But now we've got, well, a good 25 years of data on the seeker-driven movement that proves that their claims that these methods are theologically neutral and that you don't have to compromise the message, these methods ultimately do compromise the message. Why? 
because automatically what's going on is is that you're no longer telling people what they need. You're telling people what they want to hear. That is not a method that is theologically neutral. That is a method that is antithetical to what the scriptures say. Preach the word in season and out of season. Anyway, just something to think about. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith here. I've got a, uh, let's see, I've got a, it's not a Patricia King video, but I got a Patricia King gang video, a guy by the name of Stacy Campbell, who, by the way, is, you know, if you've ever seen video of Stacy Campbell, she can be a scary person. Um, I've seen videos that liken her head shaking things. Something you know, apparently she claims that the Holy Spirit comes on her, and she begins shaking her head violently back and forth while speaking into a microphone. And you know it's crazy stuff. But I've seen a video that compares that bizarre behavior of hers to something. Uh, it's like Kundalini spiritism that comes out of Hinduism. Anyway, so we got an update from her. Uh, apparently, there's a season of great opportunity upon us. Who knew? Um, I've got a new story about a serpent handling. That's will be a snake handling pastor who has died from a rattlesnake bite. Got to talk about that. Um, and then I've got three major announcements regarding a change in roster in the seeker-driven movement. Um, if you were to think of the seeker-driven movement as a team, you know, and, and that's the idea is is that it really, it, even though it's a loose network, these guys actually coordinate things together. Okay. And so think of them as a team, like a baseball team. By the way, I'm a very happy Dodger fan right now. Dodgers are doing extremely well this year, and I'm hoping that that continues. But think of the seeker-driven movement as a baseball team. And so the idea is, is that different people get moved around. Some people get taken out of the game while others are put into the game. That's kind of the way you need to think about it. So we got three major announcements regarding a change in the roster for the seeker-driven team. Uh, this involves Perry Noble, Shane Hips, as well as Richard Mao of uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, and then after that, um, they, remember at the opening of the program, I said, I hope you were paying attention to Phil Johnson's lecture uh, last week. Uh, if you were paying attention, then you're going to immediately spot the problems that's going on in, the, well, the seg segment that I'm going to do later this hour uh, Wayne Cordero. Now you're thinking, Wayne Cordero, that name sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. It should. Wayne Cordero uh, was one of the guys who was featured at Elephant Room 2. Now, I wouldn't know anything about that because, well, I was asked to leave, but um, under threat of arrest. But anyway, Wayne Cordero was one of the guys that was featured there. He has a, um, a seeker-driven um, a group that he uh, leads uh, in Hawaii. And, um, anyway, we're going to take a listen to a couple of things he's recently done. And I knew that there was a major problem in his theology when I first watched a short, like one minute long video put out by Leadership Network, uh, uh promoting Wayne Cordero's new book called Sifted. And in literally like 60 seconds, I knew there was something major going on. So I found his website, listened to a couple of his back sermons and went, Oh, talk about tip of the iceberg. So see if you can spot the problem. And then in our uh, hour number two, our sermon review today, we're going to be going to uh, Oshawa, Canada in Ontario um, to the, um, well, a ch church by the name of Embassy of the Kingdom of God. And we're going to be listening to, I, I, I can't call this a masleration. This is not really a seeker-driven thing. But we're going to be listening to 
Um, an interesting thing that occurred during the normal sermon time called the God of Second Chances. So he technically is a sermon called the God of Second Chances, and uh, which was preached by the son of the head pastor there. The son's name is Derek Schneider. And the, wow. Um, <laughs> all I could say is that something ain't right up there in Oshawa, Canada. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at that sermon. So we got lots of ground to cover today. Uh, I recommend that you make yourself comfortable, and uh, since we're going to be doing some, well, strange things here on the program, I think our warning is probably in order today. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. One thing we're going to be doing a uh, well an update from well the Patricia King gang. Now over there at xpmedia.com, uh, they they got a whole host of different folks that are somehow uh, loosely or formally associated with uh, Patricia King, who put up videos from time to time, including a gal by the name of Stacy Campbell. Now I don't I don't think I've really done many Stacy Campbell updates, but like I said, if you've seen video of her, she does some crazy things. But uh, here is her talking about apparently a great season of opportunity that is upon us as the body of Christ. And I'll let her explain. Here we go. Hi, I'm Stacy Campbell, and I'm here at this incredible conference, one of my favorite conferences of the whole year, Women on the Front Lines in Phoenix. And, um, you know, I just felt to share with you uh, what an awesome era that we are living in now. We're actually living in a new era, and this is not something that we only feel in the spirit. This is actually happening globally on the earth right now. Mm. I didn't feel anything in my spirit. Did you all feel something? I didn't feel it. Did you feel it? And um, our Dutch prophetic council led by Arlene Westerhoff posted on their website this little phrase said 2012 will be an important year for the Netherlands and for the world. And then Arlene cites a quote from Dr. Paul Kennedy, a non-Christian professor at Yale University. He wrote in um, the, uh, a Dutch national newspaper that said this, that the time that we are living in now is comparable to 500 years ago when the Reformation took place, America was discovered, the book printing was invented. He wrote that the coming time will be fundamentally different than the time we're living in now. He also said that, um, you know... Do you think that this non-believer at Yale was talking about spiritual things? 
at that time, 490, you know, uh, 500 years ago, uh, uh, 490 AD, 500 in, in that in that time. He said just before Columbus discovered. She's having a problem with basic math skills. Yeah. America, just before the printing press was invented, just before the Protestant Reformation. He said the people that were living in that time had no idea of the tremendous shift that they were living in. Yeah, they didn't. Who could have foreseen it? The world in 1530 was fundamentally different and unrecognizable from the world in 1490. And he's making a comparison between that time and this time. And this is just a secular university professor that studies times and seasons in, in global history. And what we are seeing happening now, the church must recognize that there are massive global trends. Mm. Yeah, there are for sure. None of them good. The whole, uh, uh, the whole uh, uh, Arab Spring that is fueled by Facebook, Twitter, the entire technological revolution is fueling whole global movements. The economic shift from the U.S. dollar being the primary currency, probably in our lifetime, we'll see it shift to the Chinese. Uh, yen. We'll see, uh, you know, an economic shift. We're seeing a religious shift. Isn't the yen from Japan? We're seeing, you know, signs and wonders and miracles breaking out. We're all. We are where? <laughs> Where's this miracle breakout occurring? Also seeing the earth itself groaning and shaking with earthquakes and, you know, and the nuclear threats and nuclear meltdowns in Japan. These are. Yeah, that was part of the earthquake. Uh -huh. Are going to affect so intensely the world that we live in. The UN is uh, unable to answer, you know, the global. Uh, you know, questions of war, etc. There's just yeah, they're having a tough time figuring out what to do with Assad in Syria. That would be uh, Rick Warren's buddy there. <sighs> Such a phenomenal shift happening so quickly, and I want to say to the church, we must recognize that this is a season of great opportunity. If mm. Yeah. If we understand that each one of these shakings, that, you know, God is going to shake everything that can be shaken. He said he's going to do it. That when we recognize that, when we see. Yeah, usually when God shakes things, it ain't a good thing. That's kind of a judgment kind of talking. You know. A shaking happening, an economic shift. We look to heaven and we find a solution like Joseph did in his day. And then we go and rush to that issue and we, with heaven's response because it's an opportunity. Same with the Arab Spring, it's an opportunity. Same with the, uh, you know, the actual natural disasters and, and the things that are going on. These are, a, this is a season of unprecedented opportunity for the church. Mm. Sign me up. I can <laughs> hardly wait. Um, yeah, I have no idea what she was talking about. Do you? I mean, great time of great calamity and disaster. Great time of opportunity for the church. You know, I, I, you know, um, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't see the opportunities. Anyway, maybe it's just me. All right, moving along. This is a sad story, man. From the um, Washington Post, the headline reads, Serpent Handling Pastor Profiled Earlier in Washington Post Dies from Rattlesnake Bite. Ay, ay, ay. Um, this is, I'll tell you why this is a sad story in a minute. Let me read a little bit. This is written by Julia Dewan of uh, the Washington Post. 
Uh, Mac Wolford, a flamboyant Pentecostal pastor from West Virginia whose serpent-handling talents were profiled last November in the Washington Post magazine, uh, hoped the outdoor service he had planned for Sunday at an isolated state park would be a homecoming like the old days, full of folks speaking in tongues, handling snakes, and having a great time. <laughs> yeah, I just don't ha- consider handling snakes to be part of what I would consider like a normal homecoming kind of great time. Instead, anyway, instead, Wolford, who turned 44 the previous day, was bitten by a rattlesnake that he owned for years and uh, then he died late Sunday. Mark Randall Mac Wolford was known all over the Appalachia as a daring man of conviction. He believed that the Bible mandates that Christians handle serpents to test their faith in God, and that if they are bitten, they trust in God alone to heal them. He and other adherents uh, cited Mark sixteen seventeen through 18, which, by the way, uh, doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. Now, by the way, this does not mean that the Bible isn't inerrant. This, you know, Theologians and scholars have known for a long time that the oldest manuscripts don't contain this section of Scripture. Anyway, let me read it to you from the ESV translation. It says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up their uh, serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will uh, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So, um, yeah, by the way, that's not in the oldest manuscript, so it's not really... Uh, probably not inspired, not part of the original autographs. Uh, the oldest manuscripts just don't have it. And uh, so he, he's taken literally a passage basically saying, hey, if you believe in God, you got to handle snakes. Whew. Anyway, the son of a serpent handle who himself died in 1983, after being bitten, Wolford was trying to keep the practice alive both in West Virginia, where it's legal, and in neighboring states where it's not. And he was the kind of man reporters love, articulate, friendly, appreciative of media attention. Many serpent-handling Pentecostals retreat from journalists, but Wolford didn't, and he'd take he'd take them on snake-hunting expeditions. And last Sunday uh, started as a festive outdoor service on a Sunday afternoon at Panther Wildlife Management Area, a state park roughly 80 miles west of Bluefield, West Virginia. In the preceding days, Wolford had posted several teasers on his Facebook page asking people to attend. I'm looking for a great time this Sunday, he wrote on May 22nd. It's going to be a homecoming like the old days. Good old raised in the holler or mountain ridge running, uh, Holy Ghost filled, speaking in tongues, signed believers. Uh, Praise the Lord and pass the rattlesnakes, brother, he wrote on May 23rd. He also invited his extended family who had largely given up the practice of serpent handling to come to the park at one time or another. We had handled snakes, but we had backslid. His son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you want to talk about backsliding? Yeah, historically, in the churches that I grew up in, you know, I grew up in the Nazarene church. Um, backsliding means that you have been engaging in formal cabootalating. You know, you you know, you, maybe you've been drinking, smoking, chewing, dancing. You know, uh, watching television. Uh, you know, the th- sins of the flesh, fornal cabootalating. That that's what backsliding is. At least when I was growing up in the Nazarene Church, that's what backsliding is. But here um, in West Virginia, backsliding means you've given up the practice of snake handling. Yeah, <laughs> I've been backsliding on that practice like all my life. Anyway, um, 
So uh, Robin Vanover said Monday evening his birthday was Saturday, and all he wanted to do is get his brothers and sisters in church together. And they were gathered at this evangelistic hootenanny of Christian praise and worship. About 30 minutes into the service, his sister said Wolford passed a yellow timber rattlesnake to a church member and his mother. He laid it on the ground, she said, and he sat down next to the snake, and it bit him on the thigh. A state forester who was not authorized to speak on the record said park officials were unaware of Wolford's activities. Had we known that he had poisonous animals, we would have never allowed it. The festivities came to a halt shortly thereafter, and Wolford was taken back to a relative's house in Bluefield to recover, as he always had when suffering from previous snake bites. But late in the afternoon, it was clear that this time was different, and desperate message, uh, messages began flying about on Facebook asking for prayer. Oh, man, this is just sad. The story then continues. Wolford got progressively worse. Paramedics transported him to Bluefield Regional Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead. Could not be determined when the paramedics were called. Wolford was 15 when he saw his father die at the age of 39 of a rattlesnake bite in almost exactly the same circumstances. All right, so there you go. So here's the reason why this is a sad, sad, sad story. Number one, this is a complete confusion and, and misunderstanding of what God has revealed. This is taking literally a passage that, well, for all of our best evidence, the oldest manuscripts never, never had. Mark didn't actually author this. That's what our best evidence demonstrates. But on top of it, think of it this way. Okay, if I'm required to handle snakes, that's a form of salvation by works. It's a bizarre form of legalism. And notice the language there. Well, we used to be faithful snake handlers, but we backslid. So in their mind is this expectation that God is demanding that his children handle snakes. And if you don't handle snakes, well, you're backsliding. You're not ple- God really wants you to do this, okay? And that if you get bit, you've got to believe by faith that you're going to get well. Otherwise, well, you're doing something wrong. And so what happened here? He got bit. It's bad. And he wasn't recovering, which means that Wolford spent the last hours of his life, literally, literally, during the times that he was coherent, wondering if he was pleasing to God, if he was truly saved, if he had faith. There was no assurance there. In fact, everything in his circumstances dictated that while God was displeased, he didn't have enough faith, and worse, that God was punishing him. So, um, when you think about it, snake handling is just another form of legalism. It's a, well, it's a variety of the uh, Judaizing heresy. But in this case, uh, the the thing that is at stake, or the thing the, the the rub is not well circumcision. The issue is snake handling. All it is is law. This is legalism. It's a false law. Mark doesn't say that you have to do these things. Okay, the text itself it's questionable as to whether or not it was even in the original manuscripts. And if you have a modern Bible, when you get to that section, it'll say the oldest manuscripts don't contain this section of the Gospel of Mark. The oldest manuscripts don't. 
These folks basically said, well, I've got to do this in order to be saved. And that's the sad part about it, isn't it? You can make the case based upon this theology that they probably didn't even understand the biblical gospel at all. As a result of it, well, I don't know where Wolford is, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good because he didn't understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. For if a law had been given by which men must be saved, then Christ died for no reason. That's what Galatians says. All right, we are up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, 
I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven Inquisition. In fact, those who do... Their chief weapons are... Our chief weapons are... um, Purpose. uh, uh, Vision. Okay, okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now. How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your, well, church. Especially if they're not preaching the gospel, God's word, sound doctrine, you know, stuff like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Right there in the middle of our homepage, you should see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. That one says donate. That's for you to pick the amount that you would like to support us with. The other one says join our crew. That's where you sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And a link you will not see there, but you'll only hear here at well, online at Fighting for the Faith on our radio program is our bake sale. We're in the middle of our summer bake sale in order to help us make budget during the lean months of the summer. And so uh, we're currently selling uh, bracelets that my mother-in-law made. And you can see them online at piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Bake sale is one word. And uh, uh, they've, they're very piratey. They've got the Pirate Christian logo as a sterling silver charm. Uh, the the women who've purchased them and received them already say that they're lovely I'm not into beating, but you, know, you get what I'm saying. So, you know, if you would like to support us by uh, purchasing our limited edition small quantity of, uh, you know, you know, buy one of our bracelets, 
Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Okay, moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me. Everywhere. Now we have a Perry Noble update of it sorts really here. Doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flower. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. <laughs> With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a Yeah, There we go. All right. So we're doing a Perry Noble update of sorts. Now, early in the program, I had told you that there's some changes in the seeker-driven roster. And, in fact, three major changes to talk about here. Uh, the first one comes from the Christian Post. Lillian Kwan wrote an article entitled, Megachurch Pastor Perry Noble Takes Two-Month Leave. Can, can I just ask the obvious question? Is Perry Noble really so important to the body of Christ that the Christian Post needs to let us know that he's taking a two-month leave of absence? A, a little sabbatical, if you would. Well, in the seeker-driven movement, keep in mind, Perry Noble is a rock star. He is one of the major, major uh, general—would would he be a general? Andy Stanley's a general. I'd say Andy Stanley's at least a one, two-star general. What would—well, Perry Noble would be a colonel, uh, maybe a brigadier general in the movement itself. So he's important. I mean, he's really, really important in the seeker-driven movement. So, which hence, you know, we've got to let everybody know he's going to take a two-month leave. Anyway, uh, Lillian writes. She says, Pastor Perry Noble won't be at the pulpit of his mega church this Sunday. The New Spring Church pastor has taken a two-month break for the first time in twelve years of ministry. The extended leave is not due to marriage or family or church problem, he's clarified. Instead, Noble said he realized he needed to do what sets me up for the long-term success and sets this church up for uh, the same way, with 90% of the people entering into ministry and not finishing and some pastors being worked too hard by their church, he noted he decided to take a sabbatical. So, okay, so... What would the equivalent be here? This isn't exactly the DL, the disabled list. I mean, if the, if the seeker-driven guys are a baseball team, and I think that's the right way to think about it. They, even though they're kind of a disparate network, they're kind of all over the place, they are on the same team, even though some of them play different positions. Like one guy, he'll play the orthodox guy. So he plays orthodoxy. Another guy will play edgy. And then, you know, you get what I'm saying. So uh, so he's, he's uh, well, maybe he is on the disabled list. So Perry Noble is on the disabled list for the two next two months uh, from the seeker-driven world that which kind of leads to the next thing um if, well mars hill um bible church which is kind of a funny name for it uh shane hemp's up there the winner of this year's worst easter sermon of the year award coveted award apparently in the seeker driven uh, world um shane hips has announced that he's gonna be leaving mars hill apparently uh he, he on his blog he wrote he says um 
The original calling I accepted at Mars Hill was to teach 25 Sundays a year and continue serving the broader church through speaking and writing, report report directly to the elders, and play a major role in casting vision. They acknowledged that the new role was significantly different than the one that I had originally accepted, but expressed a hope that I would consider applying for it, and I respected the decision and was grateful for their invitation to apply. And so as I've done a number of times in my life, I set about the process of discerning that call, and almost immediately it was hit with the sad realization that the one way or another my current calling was coming to an end. To look to some time to get used to, I, I love Mars Hill uh, community and have been very happy here. So he's decided that, uh, see, after Rob Bell left, see, that was the idea, is that Rob Bell and Shane Hips were supposed to be co-teaching pastors. So Shane would do uh, 25 sermons a year, Rob, you know, roughly the same. They'd, they'd split the work up between the two of them, half and half. And carry the load. Well, Rob Bell has gone to Hollywood in order to work with the producer of Lost to create some new spiritual Christianish type of uh, television program, chronicling kind of his journey. And again, you know, here's the deal: I don't know when Rob Bell's new television show is going to come out. Um, it, I don't know, you know, when the pilot's going to air or anything like that. But I, I think that it's, it's you may want to put together some people at work, you know, who who follow these things and put together some kind of a betting pool as to how many episodes will it take before Rob Bell is pictured in the lotus position, you know, meditating. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm off topic. But anyway, so, you know, things didn't work out. So, uh, you know, poor Shane Hips, he's had to preach all these sermons every Sunday. I mean, when he wants to go out and do serve the body of Christ through speaking at conferences and stuff like this. He doesn't want to be stuck preaching sermons Sunday in and Sunday out. So apparently his uh, he's decided that uh, he you know once they find a replacement for him he's going to be moving on. And which kind of leads to the next you know major roster change. So okay so if you if you've got your um your seeker driven scorecard out, you know you got to scratch Shane Hips and uh, and Perry Noble, Perry Noble's on the two month DL list. Um, Richard Mao, the uh, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, has uh, announced uh, through an email that was sent to the alumni of Fuller Theological Seminary that he has uh, decided that he's going to um, go into retirement. So, three major changes in the whole secret driven. You're thinking, is Richard Mao really such an important guy there? Yeah, actually, he is. And he, see, here's the deal. Okay, in baseball, work with the metaphor I'm working with here. In baseball, you've got your farm leagues, right? You got your single A, double A, and triple A ball clubs. I mean, I'm thinking about the Dodgers right now. You know, poor Matt uh, Matt Kemp. I mean, he had that hamstring pull, and so he he was on the DL for you know a few weeks. And before they brought him back to play last night, they Dodgers lost last night. But anyway, before they brought him back to play, you know, regularly, you know, with the Dodgers t- organization with the team. They sent him back to the uh, the farm club in Albuquerque, and he had to play a couple of games there, and he did well there, which showed that he's now he's recovered. So that's the idea. So uh, so if you're thinking about the secret driven movement, Fuller Theological Seminary is like their major farm team. Okay, you you got to think about this. I mean, some pretty big names in the secret driven movement. Well, Fuller Theological Seminary is where they come from. You know, I would think of guys like Rob Bell, Rick Warren, 
Um, you could say Tony Jones. Uh, you know, then there's others. So Fuller Theological Seminary has has, has well served the seeker-driven movement as like the major, you know, farm league, you know, to recruit new seeker-driven talent from. So, and uh, Richard Mao then as the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, you know, him stepping down. Well, I mean, that's a big deal. So major changes. If so, if you have your seeker-driven scorecard out, you, again, you're going to scratch three names there. Shane Hips, Perry Nobles on the DL, and uh, now Richard Mao is uh, he's going to be retiring. So somebody new is going to be in charge of recruitment for the major uh, farm league there at Fuller Theological Seminary for the um, <clears throat> seeker-driven community. By the way, though, um, the folks over at uh, New Spring, <laughs> this is <clears throat> kind of sad. Um, Perry handed over his blog to his leadership team while he's on the DL. And uh, so um, <laughs> uh, today there was there was a um, a post by uh, one of the lesser leaders. Well, actually, well, he, not he's he's kind of big at New Spring, and that would be Lee McDermott, the uh, the worship leader there. And in true Perry Noble fashion, he put a blog post up there, posted by him, Lee McDermott. But it's 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 so Perry Noble esque. It's just not even funny. The headline reads. Your dream sucks. So if you want to read that, by the way, that blog post by Lee McDermott, you can find it at perrynoble.com. Your dream sucks. So that's by the worship leader of New Spring Church. I mean, doesn't that just sound so Christian and so pastoral? Your dream sucks. So that, yeah, you can go read that at Perry Noble. No, uh, sorry, not so noble. Perryignoble.com. Moving along. Hawaiian music. Yeah, this would be Elvis Presley. Uh, he's swimming out to a kayak there. Hey, where'd you get that? Hey, brother. Man, what are you doing the army? Lead, man. All lead. Hey, Chad. Aloha. Aloha. This is from the Elvis Presley movie, Blue Hawaii. Yeah, a little Hawaiian music to kind of set up the mood here. Um, We're going to be listening to some sound bites, not the full thing here. First, we're going to be listening to a, a, a full video from... Leadership Network, who's promoting a new book by Wayne Cordero. Wayne Cordero was one of the featured speakers at Elephant Room 2. I wouldn't know. I was told to leave. But anyway, Wayne Cordero, he is uh, the founding pastor of New Hope in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he is a seeker-driven pastor. He's He plays on the same team as guys like, well, Mark Driscoll, uh, Rick Warren, James McDonald, and 
well, Bill Hybels, Perry Noble, who's on the DL list by now, it's Stephen Furtick, you know, guys like that. Wayne Cordero is part of that team. You know, he's he's and so Leadership Network again. Leadership Network is uh, Bob Buford's organization, and Bob Buford, by the way, early on, uh, in fact, when uh, when Peter Drucker died, Bob Buford said, "Listen." Um, I was just the legs. Peter Drucker was the brains. He was the head of uh, Leadership Network. And uh, so Leadership Network has some new, well, some promotional videos promoting Wayne Cordero's new book that they published called Sifted. So this particular video is where, well, Cordero discusses the most challenging concept of the book Sifted. See if you notice anything wrong with his, his answer. Listen. The most challenging concept in the book called Sifted is, is sort of the life in between uh, trusting God and seeing the results of your trust. As Seeing the results of your trust. Okay. It's a reward or growth or maturity or fruitfulness. We all trust God, but it's the land in between where, as Horatio Spafford says in his hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, uh, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Uh, yeah, hang on a second here. I need to Google this. Um, it is well with my soul. I would like to check the uh, lyrics of this particular old hymn that he is um, referencing here because somehow I just don't think that uh, what he had in mind uh, was that uh, seeing the results of our faith tangibly here on earth. Let's see here. Let me, so let's read it in context. The old hymn is, it is well with my soul. Uh, you all familiar with the, uh, the lyrics. I'll read the, the opening stanza. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then the refrain is, it is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. So the last, let me let me read the last two stanzas here. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the, of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. Hmm. Okay. And the Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Yeah. So what Horatio Spafford here was referring to, Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. That's the day we get to see Jesus face to face. You get what I'm saying? The second coming of Christ is what's being alluded to here in this. Isn't it weird that the seeker-driven guys, they not only can't um, quote the Bible correctly, they can't even quote a hymn correctly. I mean, they need to go to hymn hermeneutics school or something like that. Anyway, so let me back up Wayne Cordero's statement here so, uh, so that you kind of hear him in context messing things up. And it gets worse, trust me. With their maturity or fruitfulness. We all trust God, but it's the land in between where, as Horatio Spafford says in his hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, uh, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. Well, we have faith. Until it becomes sight, you've got a time where you're just walking by faith, and you're getting sifted, and you're struggling, 
and you're conflicted about it. That's the most challenging part that the book tries to answer and gives us hope so we can walk that path with confidence. Yeah, isn't it weird, you know, so the, the idea is, is that the sight is seeing the rewards here on earth of our faith. Um, so that, that led me to say, okay, maybe I need to do a little bit of research here. And so I found, um, via Google, you know, just went on Google, type in Wayne Cordero and found the website for New Hope uh, out there in Honolulu, Hawaii, where he's uh, the um, the chief leader there, and you know, that he's a leader. Because he remember, you know, Rick Warren says that the primary, you know, pastors have got to go from having the primary role of ministry to the primary role of leader. So he's the leader there at New Hope in Honolulu, and found this particular sermon. It's called "Living Exceptionally." Living exceptionally. See if you can spot the problems with this sermon. I won't be reviewing the whole thing, but just enough for you to get a radar fix on what's going wrong here. Hey, would you say thank you to Matthew Brown, the lead singer? That great? My. Well, welcome, everybody. Would you take out your notes? It's in your bulletins. We're going to follow along with our notes as we talk about living exceptionally. Now, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, which is sort of a mini-series under the umbrella of the greatest life ever lived. It's about Christ and His teaching. Now, we know that the kingdom of God isn't something that's demarcated by some geographic boundaries, like a state line or county line. But there are boundaries. There are borders because people can either enter it or not enter the kingdom. You say, well, what if you're a Christian? You're in it, right? Nope, not really. Actually, Jesus said to his disciples, enter the kingdom, enter the kingdom. They were God followers, but there was something that God was inviting them to be a part of. You say, wait a minute, I know Jesus is Lord. I should be a part of the kingdom. Yes and no. <laughs> okay, this is really whacked. What are you talking about? If I had been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I'm in the kingdom. But not according to Wayne Cordero. Now, let's take a look at the scripture and you'll see. So if, if I, do I need to handle snakes in order to be in the kingdom then? What we're talking No, watch what he does here. This is a dichotomy that he's going to set up that is just bad talking about would you read it with me go not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will so it's going to be entered through obedience not just through pedigree so the kingdom of god is going to be entered through obedience by the way that's out of context uh matthew 7 okay and uh, let's kind of make sure we understand what's going on here, because at this point, it's not clear as to what he means by the kingdom of God. 
Now, what day is Jesus referring to on that day? Answer, when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Sounds like a lot of obedience going on there. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay. So now we got to, you know, we got to, is, is Jesus saying that we're saved by works? I mean, is that really what's going on here? Well, see, you, at this point, we've got a major confusion of law and gospel. But I would uh, point something out here. This leads to the question, well, what is God's will? Okay. Only the one who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? Well, let me give you a cross-reference to this so that you kind of understand where you know what it is that Jesus is getting at here. And this is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The verses in question, by the way, are verses 39 and 40. And the reason why I'm going to say this is a direct cross-reference that helps us is because Jesus is talking about the same topic. As I read these verses to you, and I'll put them in context, you'll see that Jesus is saying what the Father's will is, okay? So this is important. John 6.35, I'll put it in context. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Okay? Okay, the perfect cross-reference. Okay? What is he, what, you know, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, right? Do we not do all these things? You know, we, we, only the ones who are going to be saved are those, who, the, only the people who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do the will of my Father. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So according to Jesus, what is the will of the Father? Well, it's real simple. The will of the Father is that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you call on him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the will of the Father. So, you know, so here we've got Wayne Cordero saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, Jesus absolutely explains what that means. And it's not obedience, because if that's what it means, then we're saved by our works. But to enter the kingdom of heaven, the will of the Father is that you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. Now let's see what Wayne does here. It's through obedience in the Lord. And then we start to understand, ah, I want to encourage you to enter the kingdom, and we're going to talk about how to do that. Now, 
Some people, because they're Christians, they just figure, I'm in it. Well, let me say this. There's two kingdoms of God, as it were. Really, where does the Bible say there's two kingdoms? Huh. One is a celestial kingdom. When Jesus comes a second time, we'll be ushered into that if you have faith in Christ and your faith and entry into heaven. That faith that gets you into heaven will be based on his performance and not yours. Okay, well, that's good news. But watch what he does here. He's going to take. He's going to start eating away at that. So apparently there's another kingdom. So how many of you are glad your faith is based on his performance and not your own? Yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. But weird here because... Matthew 7, which you're quoting, doesn't talk about a different kingdom other than the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, okay, good. That gets us into that kingdom of heaven that's a forever place. But there's a kingdom on this earth that will be done on earth as it is in... There's one here where the people who are the kingdom, uh, people of the kingdom are lights in the world, people that represent the kingdom of God on the earth like lit buoys in the ocean where people can navigate their way to find the Father. Ambassadors, people who represent heaven, whose citizenship is not of this world, but in heaven, God chose us, saved us, and then gave us an assignment on this spinning earth. Don't forget who you are. And he puts you there. And they say, oh, by the way, you're the salt of the earth. Make sure that you don't lose your savor and your identity and what I've placed you here for. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men so they'll see your Father. They'll glorify your Father in heaven and see your good works. Don't forget now, that's your assignment. You're not of this earth. You're here just for a short time. Whew. See, what we forget is that right now we're traveling at 66,000 miles an hour. This, we're just whipping through this very, very quickly. There's a kingdom of God here on this earth that we can miss. Will you get to heaven? Probably. Probably. Now, now we're down to probably. I thought you just said that we're, we get to heaven not based on our performance, but Christ's performance. And now it's, well, if you miss the kingdom of heaven here on earth, well, you'll probably be saved. But will you miss it on earth? Probably. So we want to make sure that we're a part of what God's plan is, design is. And one of the ways he's going to do it is to help us to see things differently. Now we're going to talk about that in just a second. We're going to talk about a new frame of reference, a new mindset, a new way of looking at things. We're going to go to the Old Testament, run right through the new. We're going to show you a little bit of God's vast kingdom that he commands. And then we're going to have one point of application at the end. Okay, are you ready? Some people I see on earth that are Christians, I don't know if they're really people of the kingdom. I don't even know if they're going to make it. I mean, I hear funerals, you know, I go to funerals and, and I hear a pastor say, they talk about Joe Blow in, in general ways, very, very general ways. Like, Joe Blow, uh, he is now flying with the angels somewhere. And I think to myself, you don't know where he is, do you? Because we talk about, about them in such generalities. I want, when I die, I want people to say, I know that I know that I know where that guy is. How many of you want to make sure that you know where you're going? Notice that the know that you know that you know is based upon your obedience. 
Is that a formula for any kind of assurance of salvation, your obedience? Look at your life. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't sin. That's why you have to pray the Lord's Prayer daily and go, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's in a daily prayer. So how's your obedience? Now remember, obedience, you can't say that you're obedient until you're perfectly obedient in thought, word, and deed. Yeah. And by the sins that you do and don't do. Yeah, see, sin's a pretty big problem. In fact, it's so, it's not, it's, you're, you're not a sinner because you sin. No, 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 no. You are, you sin because you're a sinner. You have tested positive for a mortal disease. The symptoms go all the way down to the core of your beating. You have a corrupt, sinful human nature. That's why you sin. So, assurance of salvation based on obedience? Oh my. Yeah, this is a formula for dire, dire pains of the heart and suffering and not knowing, having no assurance. Just like the snake handler breathing his last after being bitten by a snake and believing that he has to. If the, he has to have enough faith to overcome a snake bite all on his own faith steam. There's no assurance of salvation here. Yeah, all right. Now, there's some people I know. For example, let me put a couple up on the screen. Mother Teresa, I know, I'm confident where she's going to be. And you Really? Yar, have you read her, <laughs> read what she wrote near the end of her life, how she didn't even have faith anymore? Do you think she's saved by her good good works? She was a Roman Catholic. She held to a false gospel. Um, if you think that you know that she's saved by her obedience, well, then you may as well be a functioning Roman Catholic, Wayne. You might not recognize this person, but his name is Martin Luther, a reformer in the 1500s. I yeah, I know a lot of things about Luther. I've read a lot of Luther, and Luther would be the first to tell you that he is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and that his obedience, his good works count for nothing. In fact, there's a good good Lutheran hymn. Hang on a second here. Let me pull up my Lutheran hymnal. It's a good Lutheran hymn. I might want to pass you know, forward. I won't. I won't sing it. Uh, hymn number five fifty-five. This isn't a Luther hymn, but this is written by a Sparatus, uh, who was well um, at the time of Luther. Let's see here. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is. Our one Redeemer. Hmm. What God did in his law demand and none to him could render caused wrath and woe on every hand for man, the vile offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires and lost is our condition. It was a false, misleading dream that God his law had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature. From sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was useless and in vain our guilt was ever increasing. None can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep 
is our corruption. Yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ came and has our God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed, and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead, your death is now my life indeed, for you have paid my ransom. Let me not doubt, but truly see, your word cannot be broken. Your call rings out, come unto me, no falsehood have you spoken. Baptized into your precious name, my faith cannot be put to shame, and sh and I shall never perish. Stanza 8. The law reveals the guilt of sin and makes us conscience-stricken. But then the gospel enters in, the sinful soul to quicken. Come to the cross, trust Christ, and live. The law no peace can ever give, no comfort and no blessing. Faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him unceasing, and by its fruits true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify, works serve the neighbor, and supply the proof that faith is living. All blessing, honor, thanks, and praise to Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who saved us by his grace, all glory to his merit. O triune God in heaven above, you have revealed your saving love, your blessed name we hallow. Now you're noticing here, major confusion of law and gospel, okay? Good works truly follow being born again in Jesus Christ. It's impossible to be a new creation in Christ and not have good works, but then the question comes up, what's a good work, Right? Loving and serving your neighbor and your vocation. Being a good mom, a good dad, a good student, a good employee. That, that's the idea. But see, the thing is, is you sin daily and sin much. So your good works cannot provide you with assurance of salvation. And that's not what they're there for. Your good works are to serve your neighbor. And you daily flee to the cross and know that your salvation has been won in full by him. What Wayne Cordero is doing here is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, and on the on the one side he's trying to affirm the gospel, but on the other, the other side of his mouth, he's denying it and undermining it. Somehow, well, there's this second kingdom. It's here on earth, and well, it's only by obedience. And if you want assurance, well, it's all based on obedience. Look at Mother Teresa. I know where she is because she was obedient. No, where he's going to be. And some of you recognize this one, the great evangelist, Billy Graham. I know, I'm confident where these people are. There's some, though, they call themselves Christians. I don't know where they're going to be. I just... Yeah, I don't know who that is. It's, it looks like a photograph of maybe somebody that they know, kind of an inside joke. They're different. But we'll move right along, because I don't want you to get caught up in that. But, <clears throat> but I want to go all the way back to the Old Testament. It's going to be the same in the New. Jesus comes in, and he fulfills. He doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills the law. You're going to see some law. Now watch what he does here, and you should hear eerie similarities to the things that Phil Johnson warned us about last week. In the Old Testament, we're going to talk about that. And if you've been doing devotions with us, you're in Deuteronomy, all these laws and sacrificial laws. Now, when Jesus comes in in the New Testament, 
He doesn't abolish these. He fulfills these. For example, there are sacrificial laws. There's dietary laws. There's ceremonial laws. There's also physical laws like gravity. There's moral laws, how we treat one another. Well, Jesus fulfills many of the... Physical laws like gravity? Ceremonial laws. He also fulfilled the sacrificial law, the sacrifices that have to be made for sin. When Jesus came, he was the sacrificial lamb that died once and for all for the sins of the world. So he didn't abandon those. He fulfilled those. Dietary laws, many of those he fulfilled. If you look in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, what I have called clean, don't ever call again unclean. He fulfilled certain laws. But there are certain ones that are yet in motion. Physical laws, for example. Gravity and all that God's doing. And also... Hmm, you don't want to be breaking the law of gravity. <sighs> yeah. You may not make it to heaven. You may not be part of that, you know, kingdom here on earth if you're breaking the law of gravity. So, the moral laws, how we treat one another. So you find at the top of our notes, let's read this scripture as we're getting on the same page today. Would you read it out loud? Go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least where in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly the kingdom of heaven ah so here's what's happening the Lord is saying I'm not gonna abolish them I'm gonna fulfill them now, I'm going to put some commands in place. And if you obey them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you don't, you'll be least. Now, here's some commands. And you look at, the, at Deuteronomy. God puts laws up there, like the Ten Commandments. You know what God is doing? He is, and would you write it in, your number one there? He is little by little. God is developing in you and me a biblical frame, like a picture frame, a biblical frame of reference through which we look at life. Yeah, now he goes on to basically make a big argument here um, that this is all about your obedience. Remember the passages, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. Um, well, so, um, what are you going to do? I mean, the Pharisees were pretty righteous dudes. Does that mean that Jesus is telling us to try harder to be more obedient? Is that what's going on there? By the way, the righteousness that I have exceeds those, that of the Pharisees. And you're thinking, how can you possibly say such a thing? Answer, well, because the righteousness that I have is not my own. The righteousness that I have is not my own. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 2, Paul, warning about the Judaizers, says, Look out for those dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though my, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. 
I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's scubalon, and it's really strong. Uh, think of dog droppings. In order that I, so I consider all of my good works, my obedience unto the law, I consider all of that as rubbish, as scubalon, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God that depends on faith. Let me give you a cross-reference to this. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writing against the Judaizers, starting at this verse 15, says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. That means to be declared righteous, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, obedience, nobody will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died. For no purpose. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Like I said, I hope you were paying attention last week to Phil Johnson's lecture, and the one regarding the survey of heresies, because if you were paying attention, then what you heard going on in Wayne Cordero's little mini um, video, as well as this little sermon that I played part of, well, you would realize, hmm, Phil Johnson was describing exactly what it is that I was hearing there. And you know what? If you thought that, then you were thinking correctly. That's exactly what it is that Wayne Cordero is teaching. And that's the heresy that he's engaging in. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Ah! 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted, feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen, and I use my Bamboo Stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day -day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunners yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunners. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. This is just a weird one. I've been getting emails from folks saying, I've got to review this 
sermons from this church, and they've been very persistent. So I checked them out, and <laughs> all I know is I don't know what I'm listening to. <clears throat> Hang on, you'll find out. Let's cue this up and do it right. Na, na, na. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Embassy of the Kingdom of God, Oshawa, Canada. Derek Schneider presiding. Now, hes I think he's the son of the head pastor there, Dougie. The name of the sermon is The God of the Second Chances. Oh, my. <laughs> Yeah, I got bad news for you. If you think God's the God of second chances, well, then you're going to go to hell because if God gave you three chances, you'd mess all those up. And if he gave you a hundred, you'd mess all those up. Yeah, second chance means you got to get it right the second time. In other words, you won't make it. There's no assurance of salvation under those terms. Christ lived the law perfectly for you. But anyway, I digress. Um... Maybe it's just best if I stop here and get into the sermon. So here's God of the Second Chance. I don't, like I said, I don't know what this is, but this is some crazy stuff that I'm hearing here. Listen in. I've entitled the message this morning, The God of the Second Chance. <laughs> the God of the Second Chance. Do you like that title? No. Now, we are living in what is said to be one of the greatest or possibly the greatest reformation since the book of Acts. The greatest reformation. Really? Have you been listening to the Patricia King channel? I'm curious. Reformation of the church since the book of Acts. God is doing a fresh thing, a new thing, and because of that... You know, my dad always says you steer a big ship slowly. When God wants to turn the body of Christ, he has to do it over a process of time. Because if he does it too fast, if he shifts too fast, the precious lambs can be left behind and he doesn't break anything. He does all things well. And so over the last decade, we've had a transition and a shift that's taken place in the body of Christ. Uh-oh, um, really? I thought God was the same today, yesterday, and forever. I thought we believed in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What's the shifting stuff you're talking about? Yeah, false doctrine is designed, is well, it's described in Scripture as the winds of false doctrine, you know, being blown hither and yon. This is weird. And everything that could be shaken in our lives was shaken. How many know that to be so? You've heard my dad preach on this a lot. And this shift began to take place, and it felt like all hell was breaking loose. And the Lord was speaking to me to give this word to us this morning. Really? So this is direct revelation from the prophet Derek Schneider. I mean, he's getting direct revelation from God. <clears throat> 
that God has sustained you and led you like Israel through the wilderness. And the wilderness is the place of brokenness and total dependency upon God. It's the place where you need him. If he does not sustain you, you will not make it. How many have had a few years like that recently? (laughs) (laughs) Whew, that was a creepy, evil laugh. But the Lord is saying that as he has brought us out of this shift, it is easy to want to go back to how we lived in the wilderness. We've come out beaten. We've come out tired. We've come with scars and trauma and things that we've picked up along the way. And the Lord wants to say to us this morning, it's time to break out. It's time to go to the next level. Oh, no. It's time to leave the crutches behind. It's time to leave the wilderness behind. It's time to say bye-bye to certain types of pain, grief, trauma. God wants to take you into the finally. He wants to take us into the new thing. And we cannot live in the old while he's trying to give us the promised land. Folks, uh, if you go to the embassy of um, the kingdom of God in Oshawa, If they offer you Kool-Aid, do not drink it. Serious. Where you were weak and feeble in the wilderness, you will be conquering in the promised land. Where you lived by water and manna and just got by, in the promised land, you will have an abundance of fruit and food and wealth. God wants to restore all that you've been through these last number of years. He is the God of more chances. He's the God of the second chance. He's the restoring God. Yeah, because you keep referring to him as the God of the second chance, I know you're not talking about the God of the Bible. That makes you a false prophet, dude. He's the lifter of your head. He is the one that brings you out of the bad and into the good. He is Jehovah Jireh. His name is provider. He is healer. He is deliverer. He has not changed. He is not a God that he would lie. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, he is, which is kind of weird that you were talking about all this changing stuff that's going on. Hmm. I'd like you to turn to the book of Jonah, chapter number 2. Jonah, chapter number 2. Now, Jonah was a man who was called of God. He rejected that call initially and even didn't do so well near the end. But he has an experience where he reaps the consequences of his rejecting of God's call, his rejecting of what the Lord asked him to do. And he ends up going down into Joppa, the text says. He ends up paying the fare, you know, the wages of sin. He ends up going into the belly of the boat and then goes even lower in his haste to run from God and the call. And he uh, ends up in the belly of a whale. He repents. Sometimes you need the belly of a whale to bring you to a place of repentance. Isn't that true? We all end up there sometimes. Yeah, I've never been inside the belly of a whale, a fish, or anything like that. I've somehow avoided all of that. And he repents and prays a prayer that is somewhat messianic and a prophetic picture 
of Jesus Christ. You can find Jesus all throughout Jonah. And he says, chapter 2 and verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Then chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. See, that means that God's a God of second chances. Now, I'm not so amazed reading that about the whale, because I know God can do that kind of thing. I'm not so amazed even that the whale was used to deliver him up and vomit him onto the dry land, which is pretty fantastic. What more amazes me in this passage is that God gave Jonah a second round. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You'd think upon rejecting it the first time and really running, I mean hardening your heart, ending up in the belly of a whale, you would think that that would be enough to really, you know, God would have had enough. Isn't that interesting? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That is to say, God gave Jonah a second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I am amazed that God, who does all things well the first time, will give his people a second time. A God who expects us to be like him in his image. A God who knows we're not perfect, but he's used to doing all things well. Understands that we always don't do all things well. And in his mercy, he loves to give us second chances. Well, that's not mercy, actually. That'd be cruelty because our sinful nature is going to mess it up every single time. It's actually the nature of this perfect awesome God to give chance after chance after chance. Don't mess them up. Eventually, you may not get any more chances. This is all law, not gospel. I bet you've never heard it preached like this before. You're right. Well, actually, you're wrong. I've heard you know, many legalistic folks screw this kind of stuff up many different ways. Your particular version, well, it's kind of unique to you, though. In fact, at the beginning of time, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, that word created is to remake out of something that already was. God is attracted to chaos. He's attracted to voidness and formlessness. Really? I did not know that. He's attracted to problems, and he loves to remake them and give you another chance. And the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters, hovering, recreating, giving the earth regenerative ability. Yeah, that's kind of weird there because, you know, when I read in the Hebrew, it says, in the beginning, God created yeah, I, when I read it in the Hebrew, I, I've never tr- once translated that passage as in the beginning God recreated. Um, weird. You know, and none of the modern translations I read say that God recreated. Strange. Hmm. My goodness. Noah and the ark. God actually says, I regret making man. I mean, you have to push God pretty far when even God says, I regret making you. He says, I'm sorry that I've made man. 
but he spares Noah as, and his family as an instrument. And, and he says, listen, build an ark. You guys are going to live in that ark. And I'm going to wipe out the entire world with a flood, drown everybody because they're only doing sin continually. But you, Noah, are going to be my instrument of giving mankind a second chance. We can go further into Scripture and, and find Israel in the wilderness. We can find Israel in general throughout the Bible, tussling with God. I marvel. Sometimes sit down and read through the Old Testament uh, day after day and find out you think, man, is God desperate for friends? He should have wiped, wiped people out a long time ago. They, you know, you- uh, by the way... Um- I think there's a good explanation as to why God didn't just wipe everybody off the face of the earth. And that is is that God's word doesn't return to him void. God doesn't lie. He promised Adam and Eve a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus hadn't come yet by the time of the flood. So, um, yeah, there's see the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's redemptive work in history, and we're following the genetic the, the genetic line of Christ Jesus, the Messiah. So, um, boy, this is bad. You read Judges. Man was doing evil. He sends a judge. They repent. Few generations later, they go back to evil again, sends another judge, and God does this over a period of literally thousands of years. His long-suffering, his mercy is unfathomable. That he would give Israel a people that continually rejected him. A a people who continually hardened their hearts and had stiff necks, the Bible says. And yet God would continually be merciful upon them. The Bible even says that at one time, God said, leave me alone and let my anger burn against my people Israel. And Moses got down on his knees and cried out to God and said, for your name's sake at least, will you spare Israel. And you know, the Bible says that God changed his mind. When God changes his mind about you, when is the last time you've prayed and interceded in such a way that God changed his mind? When is the last time you've walked so closely with God that you deserved a particular penalty, you deserved certain things to happen, you were backslidden, you went through a difficult time, but on your knees in tears and petition before the Lord, he changed his mind, changed your situation, and gave you a second chance. This guy's voice creeps me out. Whoa. This is the God you serve. It's his nature to give second chances. The principle we can derive from this is that prayer and intercession can cause God to change his mind and even give you a second chance. I want you to turn with me. That's not even good news. What if he says, no, I'm not going to give you a second chance? (laughs) Where does the Bible, when did the gospel become God's going to give you a second chance? That's not good news. I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm thinking about Rick Warren's uh, Mulligan Theory of the Atonement from a Christmas sermon he delivered a few years ago, where he, you know, tried to make the argument that you know that uh, that the gospel is like Jesus giving us a mulligan. 
and I argued at that point, it's that's not good news. I mean, I I I used to play golf. I don't have time or money to play it now. I you know I play disc golf, which is free, except for the discs. But you get what I'm saying. But the point is, is that you know I've played golf before. I've you know with sticks and balls and you know and tees and you know with the birdies and the you know and the bogeys. You get what I'm talking about. Anyway, as somebody who spent some time playing golf. A mulligan is really not all that merciful, plus it's cheating. But even if it was not against the rules, it's not all that great of a deal. Because here's the deal. I've seen so many guys screw up a mulligan, it's not even funny. I mean, you get out on the golf course and you're playing with somebody who hasn't really played that much. You know, maybe they only play a couple of times a year. And they think, you know, I'm going to go out to the driving range and hit a couple of buckets of balls and I'll kind of get things straightened out. It'll be a great round. And, you know, that guy, you can tell he's going to he's going to score 106, you know, after 18 holes of golf. And that's <laughs> if he's being um, liberal with his scoring technique. But the point is this. You get that guy on the first tee, right? He's teed up his ball. He's got his driver out. He's looking down, downrange. Okay, it's a you know, 390-yard uphill par four right? And there's water that he has to carry on the first hole. So he'll get up and he will, you know, address the ball, do his little waggle, pull his his club back. And like all duffers, just slice across the ball. He'll barely touch the ball, but send it careening in a very strong rightward slice right into the pond. And you're going, oh, this is going to be a long hole. So here, okay, so someone mercifully goes, ah, don't worry, we'll give you a mulligan, just tee tee up another one. So he goes to his bag, grabs another ball, puts it on the tee, and he hits it, and this time it dribbles four feet in front of him. I mean, (laughs) he just had a second chance. You got to understand, when you're given a second chance, you still got to perform, right? This is law. This is not gospel me over to our next scripture, Genesis chapter number 21. When God changes his mind. (laughs) Genesis 21 verses 4 to 7 says, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, God's the one who promised him a son uh, through Sarah. Um, so God's the one who said so. See, God's word doesn't return to him void. That he, God fulfills his promises. He keeps his word. You know what I'm saying? Now, Abraham has a power encounter with God in, uh, I believe it's chapters 15 and 16, where literally the Lord Jesus, prior to his coming, appears as a burning flame and walks and consecrates a covenant. And God Almighty says to Abraham, I am going to give you an heir, and from you all the nations will be blessed. If you can count the stars, if you can count the sand, that's how many Uh, are going to be your offspring and uh, inheritance. And Abraham has this power encounter with God. And you read a couple verses later, and his wife says, well, how's that going to happen? Maybe you need to go into Hagar because I am too old to produce a child for you. And he ends up sleeping with the, the maid, 
the mistress, Hagar, she gets pregnant. And then, you know, she's, uh, Sarah is despised in Abraham's sight. And Sarah chases away Hagar. And then an angel appears to Hagar and says, go back to, to Sarah. And there's this whole fiasco that goes on. And it literally was a period of 13 years before God was able to fulfill the promise. Ishmael came from Hagar, which was not the child of promise, though God said, I will still bless Ishmael and make them a great nation. But that was not the child of promise. What amazes me, 13 years later, It was literally, the promise was sidetracked, but God appears to Abraham again. He shows up later and renews the covenant. And if you read through the text, you find that Abraham is having this experience with God, and God shows up and repeats the promise he made to him 13 years earlier. You know there are promises that God has made to you and I that are just a matter of time away. They're just a heart change away. They're just a few decisions away. 13 years later, the son, Isaac, is born. The son of promise, of whom even Jesus came from. 13 years later, the promise came. And so you see that there are times in our life where God gives us a promise. He gives us something to do. He presents destiny in front of us, but we make poor choices along the way because... Yeah, I'm sorry, but that story is not about God presenting destiny before us. That's about God fulfilling his promise regarding the Messiah, who, by the way, is a direct descendant of Abraham and Sarah. Because of our human nature. We make mistakes along the way. Some of us in this room have lost money on the journey towards wealth. You haven't seen the wealth yet that was promised to you. Don't focus on what you lost. Focus on what you're walking into. Don't focus on what was derailed. Focus on how God is re-railing you and ordering your steps. It doesn't matter how far the wind of Satan blew you to the left. God is able to bring you back on track, re order heaven and earth he will cause mountains to move to fulfill his promise to you he is the god of the second and what is his promise to mean what's this god of the second chance stuff again the bible doesn't teach this third fourth chance did you think satan was going to win There is that evil laugh again. What is this? Did you think Satan had so much power over you? Did you think God's hands were short? That he could not accomplish it? Sarah is too old to have a baby and God still delivers. He's the God that wins every time. He's the God that scores at the last minute. He's the game seven God. This is creepy. Man. When I was young, younger, my dad took me with another man in the church to see the LA Kings. The Kings play the Maple Leafs. And it was the first hockey game I'd ever been to. 
And I remember Gretzky was playing. Everybody came to see Gretzky because you knew Gretzky was going to do something. And, and that's who you came to see, even though I'm in Toronto. I wanted to see this Gretzky. I had a, a poster up on my wall, which now would be, I guess, considered idolatry, but it had him and it said, the great one. <laughs> Only Jesus is the great one. But Gretzky, Gretzky got the puck and he was ahead of everybody else. He had a breakaway and he's going down the ice. And do you know some, some little maple leaf came up, by, came up behind him and put the stick out and just tripped him. And he fell and lost control of the puck. And I sat there and thought, oh, this is just awful. This is terrible. I could have seen Gretzky score. And then all of a sudden the whistle blew and, and it was just Gretzky at the center. And I said, dad, what's going on? He said, well, because of that, he gets a penalty shot. Gretzky got a second chance. And, and I sat there as a kid, and Gretzky starts to go down the ice, and suddenly the roar of the arena as everybody stood on their feet. And I'm a kid I can't see past everybody. I'm trying to stand on my chair, and I, I remember just seeing in between people this little man racing down the ice, and you know he scored. That's how God is. That's how Jesus is. That's exactly how Jesus is. So Jesus is a hockey player, got it. Isn't that amazing? No, because he didn't show me that from God's word. I'll never forget seeing Gretzky play. Haven't really been to a game since, but that was a good one. <laughs> it is not because of how great we are that God gives us a second chance, but it's because of how great he is. I don't really remember writing that, but it's good. You know, you get the Neo Citrin going and the Tylenol is like my breakfast, lunch, and dinner these days. Yeah, the way you're talking, I'm going to grab a crucifix and some holy water. Good night. It is not because of how great we are that God gives us a second chance, but it's because of how great he is. It is God's glory to display his mercy. When he forgives us of so much. And that's why he can't fathom how we can't forgive each other. Because we so don't deserve another chance. We so have broken his laws. We so have rejected him. We've made mistake after mistake. Even on our best day, he's giving us more chances. And so he cannot fathom. That's why the scripture says, if you don't forgive your brother or sister on earth, he will not, Jesus said, my father will not forgive you. Because that is just unthinkable that God would have given you a second chance and you're not able to give your brother or sister a second chance. Actually, this text says to forgive them. Forgive from the heart. Big difference than giving them a second chance. That's why that scripture is said, is said the way it is. It's hard to forgive people. Now think of what someone has done to you that so offended you, you think, I, I don't know if I can find it in my heart to forgive. 
Well, I'll tell you something. God has found it in his heart. Think of what you have done to God. And he has found it in his heart to give you another chance. We have to be people of a second chance. We have to be people that show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain. You want chances? You want more opportunities? You want God to forgive you? Start being merciful. Blessed are the... I better not stand too close here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain. Judge not, lest you be. You see, this is Bible. I want to give a few keys. Keys to getting back up and entering your second chance. Keys to getting back up and entering your second chance. Now the Bible says that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. And I used to read that scripture and marvel. When we talk about a righteous man falling seven times, we're talking about completely falling. We're talking about you know, seven being completion, and this man has repeatedly fell. When a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up, we understand this text to mean that a righteous man falls completely and gets back up, okay? Now, what makes him righteous? I used to ask myself this question, how can he be righteous when he's fallen? I, I couldn't understand that. My, my religious, you know, critical mind, black and white thinker couldn't grasp that. Well, if he fell, that excludes him from righteousness. Like, you fell or you're not doing well and you're over here. Well, you can't be righteous then. But the key is in the, the end of that verse, which says, a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. It is not in your falling that necessarily qualifies you for righteousness. It is in your ability to get back up and embrace another chance that makes you righteous. It is in your walking as you stumble and fall. If you can just keep walking towards the cross. And what happened on the cross and how does that play into it? I'm a little confused by your lack of clarity from the Bible here as to what exactly the gospel is. It is in your pursuit of Jesus, despite this wretched body of mind. Ah, law. So my pursuit. I got to keep pursuing. That's law, not gospel. Mine. Paul said, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I should be doing. What, what will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of mine? It is the pursuit of Jesus Christ, your eyes fixed upon him, that qualifies you. Not whether you did ten things right, ten things right. Except for what it is you're describing. That's the thing that qualifies you. By the way, the Apostle Paul answers the question. Romans chapter 7 turns into Romans chapter 8, which read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say for those who are pursuing Christ Jesus. It says, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See see what's going on here? Paul answers the question, but this guy is not letting Scripture answer the question. He's answering it with stuff that is not the same as what Scripture says wrong it's none of that it's not about keeping score it's about saying god i fall upon the rock lest you fall upon me i can't do it in my own strength i am who i am search my heart lord you're the god of the second chance (laughs) again that's not the gospel search my heart well out of the heart comes all kinds of sin so if i were to search in there you know what i'd find same with you by the way I am only righteous because I just keep getting back up. You hit you. Man, this is so bad. I'm righteous because I keep getting back up. (laughs) That's law. No, I'm righteous because I'm in Christ. Salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not ourselves. It is the gift of God. This guy is coming up with a whole new works righteousness scheme get hit you fall over you get back up the devil hits you life hits you your own self hits you and you get back up this is your righteousness the ability to pursue him despite the turmoil despite the challenges many of us have come through this season and we got we feel like we got hit in the head with a bag of hammers we're in recovery. You're not at your best. You got shook up. It does not mean that God is not going to take you to the place he's called you. It does not mean that you're not able to recover and go further than you've ever been before. Your present situation does not have to dictate your future. Your past especially does not have to dictate your future. Because you're divorced doesn't mean God has disqualified you from something. Because you did something that you can't believe you ever did does not mean that God cannot pick you up and restore you to a place of victory as though it never happened. Otherwise, he would not have said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, there is something that sounds like the gospel, but because he hasn't properly told us what the gospel is, remember, this is the God of second chances. You've got to get it right the second time. That's what is apparently, you know, Christ's blood, you know, Wipes away our sins, makes us white as snow so that we can do it ourselves. You know, because you're justified by your pursuit of Jesus. God is a God of opposites. He loves to take scarlet and turn it into snow. He loves to take... Yeah, so that's his explanation. That's it. God's... Well, he's just a God of opposites. He likes to take scarlet and turn it into snow. He likes to turn black into white, up into down, left into right, west into east, and north into south. Who knew? Sin and turn it into righteousness. He loves to take shortcoming and turn it into victory. He loves to take weakness and turn it into strength. If you can just get to 
to a place of that humility where you recognize if you can just get to a place. Yeah, um, that's law. You have to get to that place. It's not gospel. I said, God is a God of the second chance. Five keys to getting back up and entering your second chance. Number one, embrace your humanness. <laughs> really, embrace my humanness. That's what, where does the Bible say to do that? Embrace your humanness. Be realistic. Don't think more highly of yourself than you are. You're a human being greater than you have tried to fight the fight. Number two, deep humility and brokenness. Deep humility and brokenness. I've had some experiences over the last couple of weeks. I'm sure you have, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about them as if, well, it's the Word of God. Of moments where the awe of God has come upon me. And I've become deeply humbled, not by a situation or a circumstance, but by Him. Just Him. Mm-hmm. I've become broken, quiet. Just, okay, God, I'm... When you have a real revelation of where you're at, a real revelation of your heart, you'll know you need the God of the second chance. Deep humility and brokenness. We must live in that place. We must maintain an attitude of this humility and brokenness. Number three. Find it in your heart. And this is for somebody here. Find it in your heart to forgive yourself. Hmm. Yeah. I need to be forgiven by Christ and your explanation of the, you know, takes our sins and makes, you know, even though our sins are scholarly, makes us white, white as snow. Your explanation is that God is a God of opposites. So rather than receiving and hearing and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ, now we're left, well, just twisting in the wind, embracing our humanity and, well, forgiving ourselves. A lot of good that's going to do for me on the uh, Day of Judgment. Can you imagine, you know, somebody up there going, you know, hey, you know, Peter, let me in. Um, well, let's take a look at the books here. Um, let's see. Well, sorry. Yeah, your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean it's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I forgave myself. I mean, shouldn't God forgive me too? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes it's easier to forgive others than it is to forgive ourselves. Sometimes Jesus so desperately wants to take us by the hand and lead us into our next season. 
but we're still wallowing in the old. We're wallowing in who we used to be. We have not yet forgiven ourselves. Don't be shocked and amazed. You're a human being. Forgive yourself because I have news for you. He's forgiven you. If you asked him and repented and, you know, he's forgiven you. Well, that's good to know. Great to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Christ has forgiven me as long as I pursue him. And, you know, and he's the God of the second chance. I got to get it right the second time. And you, you get what's going on here? This isn't the biblical gospel. Even though the words sound similar, the meanings are different. This isn't the biblical gospel you're hearing. It's something different. Number four. Prayer and intercession that refreshes and restores. Prayer and intercession. That refreshes and restores. You need that new and improved intercession that refreshes and restores. Does it also whiten, you know, your whites and makes it so your colors stay bright? That refreshes and restores. Prayer and intercession pave the way for your next season. They pave the way for you. Mm. Okay. Any Bible verses that say this? For you to be able to grasp what God wants to do for you. Prayer prepares your heart to get into line with where God is leading you, though you feel you don't deserve it. Yeah, this guy is literally rolling his own theology and smoking it. I I don't know what any of this is. I mean, how do you biblically correct something that isn't even a, a biblical teaching? It's just an assertion. I mean, if I were to sit down with somebody from this church, I would have to start at square one as far as biblical Christian catechesis. Who is God? Who is Christ? What has he done? What's prayer? I mean, I I can't build on this foundation. And the last one, number five. Pursue a revelation of God's redemptive nature and unconditional love. Pursue a revelation. Pursue a revelation. Well, all I need to do is open up my Bible. That's where all that's revealed. Of God's redemptive nature and unconditional love. You can be told hundreds of times how much Jesus loves you, but until it becomes a revelation, you can't walk in it. Mm. So until it becomes a revelation, I can't walk in it. I have no idea what you're talking about. It can be preached. You can hear about it. You can even try to read about it. But until it becomes a revelation where it goes off in your heart, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand. So look for it. Go after it. Father, I, I believe you, you're the God of, of second and third chances. I believe you're the God of this new season I'm going into. But I can't fathom that you love me. Is there anyone here this morning that sometimes you have a hard time grasping his love for you? I want to pray for you right now. 
I feel the anointing on this strongly. <laughs> you know I'm not going to let you pray for us, right? If that's you, you have a ongoing bouts of this where you have trouble grasping that Jesus loves you this way. Would you just stand right where you are? It's normal to go through that. There are pastors who should admit they don't understand the love of Jesus yet. Father, I pray for these precious... Yeah, done. Oh, man. I, <laughs> I feel unclean after that sermon. I, I really do. I, I, sermon... Well, here's the deal. Joel Osteen's sermons make me upset. That's one of the reasons I don't review them anymore. Um, because those ones actually make me mad. This one creeped me out. It, from the delivery to the voice to the way the the gospel was twisted, everything in this was just wrong. And, ugh. I mean, I, I don't know what it is I heard here. And like I said, I don't, I, I don't have a foundation to build on here Biblically, to correct, I mean, how, how do you untangle, I mean, the whole mess? I, that, what I heard, that's a different religion. Y yeah, there's some similar vocabulary, but the words are all different. Everything is backwards, upside down, inside out, black is white, white is black. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at a negative, not a picture. Y you understand what I'm saying? So, Yeah. Um, I might review a few more sermons from this, uh, church, but I don't know what that was. That was something, well, evil. And I mean that it was seductively evil and absolutely has got me unhinged at the moment. So, all right, we're at the end of another edition of fighting for the faith if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.